0: To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild. Or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for donate. Hey for the wild community, it's Ayana here speaking to you from the Spirit Weavers Gathering, where we are screening our film When Old Growth Ends about Old Growth logging in the Tongass National Forest and I wanted to share a few updates before our conversation with Tom Goldtooth. We're calling out for land partners to plant trees and implement our biodiversity enhancement test plots. If you're a land steward and are interested in this prospect, email us at engage and ask about our land partnership for our 1 million redwoods project. We're also expanding our research team and we're on the lookout for people with backgrounds in forestry and mycology. So again, email us at engage at world to be on our research team for the One Million Redwoods Project. And lastly, we are open to sponsorships, so if you or your business would like to sponsor this podcast and help us spread these messages, again, email us at engage at world. All right, now on to the show.
1: It's part of our prophecies for one thing. Some of our people have been told that a time will come when these children of the colonizers, these people who come as the settlers, that they're gonna start waking up and see those things that we've always been saying. Silence is broken by somebody crying Trying to be heard, never a word Always the attitude, sought out your own Always alone Wishing for something the world is denying Out in the wilderness somebody's crying Wishing for something to happen, wishing to tell, wishing to help, someone was listening, someone who cared, never despaired, someone to lean on and someone to trust, who needs
0: Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayanna Young. Today we are speaking with Tom Goldtooth. Since the late 1980s, Tom, member of Dene and Dakota Nations, has been involved with environmental-related issues and programs working within tribal governments in developing indigenous-based environmental protection infrastructures. He works with indigenous peoples worldwide, as Executive Director of Indigenous Environmental Network since 1996, Tom is known as one of the environmental justice movement grassroots leaders in North America, addressing toxics and health, mining, energy, climate, water, globalization, sustainable development, and Indigenous rights issues. He is one of the founders of the Durban Group for Climate Justice, co founder of Climate Justice Now co-founder of the U.S.-based Environmental Justice Climate Change Initiative, and a member of the International Indigenous Peoples Forum on Climate Change that operates as the Indigenous Caucus within the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Tom is a policy advisor to Indigenous communities on environmental protection, and more recently on climate policy focusing on mitigation, adaptation, and concerns of false solutions. He was also awarded the Gandhi Peace Award in 2015. Oh Wow, Tom, what a gift it is to welcome you on the show today. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Ayana. I'm glad to be on the call. And it's a, it's a warm day where I'm from right now in northern Minnesota. We have not even have a spring. We went straight from a long winter, almost like right into summer. Definitely all over where I've been uh, traveling and talking to people, it's very warm out there in uh, North America.
0: Oh my goodness, it is. It was breaking 90s yesterday here in Northern California, and it's still May, so we're all feeling the heat. I just want to jump right into this topic of red, and your work on behalf of Earth and Sky has reverberated through networks locally, nationally, and internationally. And you are so well-versed in the ways colonization unduringly attempts to exploit, commodify, and privatize the sacredness of life. And in this phase of great planetary shifts, we see the beast of global capitalism unraveling, Yet instead of letting itself die, it literally grasps for carbon as the new commodity. With the UN, the international NGOs, and institutions such as World Bank championing market-based carbon trading regimes such as REDD, program, which is reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation. And you and IEN have been loud in your opposition to REDD, not only for its failure to address the root sources of climate change, but also as a scheme to precipitate one of the largest land grabs in colonial history. So Tom, would you help us understand the mechanisms of red, how it works, and also explain why you have compared it to the doctrine of discovery for its use of dishonest justifications to dispossess indigenous peoples of their lands and cultures?
1: Well you asked me to talk about something that I'm really passionate about. I remember when I first got into this work, there are some friends of mine who are older than me, I guess in our way, you know, one would call them my uncle, my aunties. Uh, I've always had older friends, uh, even when growing up. And of course, like, In in relationship, I would normally call someone my uncle or grandpa, but somehow for me, it was more on a friendship, and they opened that door with me. You know, so that's why I say I have I have some elder friends who say who told me, Tom, in this work that you're doing with this organization, working on environment, remember, it's spiritual work. Because our relationship, no matter what tribe, we have a spiritual relationship to our Mother Earth, to our Grandmother Earth, and also the creation of life, including the sky, Father Sky, the universe. So those are things that definitely I was raised with understanding that relationship that I have as I walk on Mother Earth. It's always been a a foundation of who I am and what I talk about. So it was a good reminder when they said, you know, don't forget of that work that you do is spiritual work. The second piece that I was told is also watch out if you if you come upon an issue that's really hard to translate into language. And and this moment came about, I would say about 15 years ago, when there was a lot of policy work in this country, but internationally, where it seemed like instead of the countries of the North, like the United States and Canada and Europe and the UK, instead of cutting back on carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases, they actually started to look at alternatives and way instead of cutting back, they created a market system called carbon offsets, carbon credits, going carbon neutral, carbon trading, payment for environmental services. This is an area that I really needed to study. So looking at it, studying it, talking to elders, even having ceremonies, consulting with other folks that, you know, about what is this all about? And at the end of that analysis, you know, I, I really had to, to speak out against it because it was a violation of the sacred bottom line. It involves a, a market system of trading air. In this case, carbon or methane and other greenhouse gases a trading mechanism to where if you trade anything in, in a trading system in this, in this world, whether it's a Wall Street type of trading system, you have to determine whose property right that is. You can't trade anything until you determine the property right. In this situation, we have a economic regime where you have to privatize the air and create a trading mechanism. It is a form of privatization. That's that's something that is very critical to us is that the world has come to this time and place to where this is one of the major solutions of the United States and Canada and other countries of the North to mitigate climate change that we're in. Another moment that I always reflect on is a gathering that was held by an indigenous president of Bolivia. Evo Morales, uh, who is still the president. And he was so frustrated participating in the UN climate meetings when he also was trained to integrate in the issues around indigenous uh, cosmology. It was in 2009 in Copenhagen. And there was a strong resistance against these fault solutions. I N was very critical in that area, and we were mobilizing other NGOs, non-government organizations, to to speak out against these, that they're false solutions. They're not really mitigating climate, and actually they're giving polluters the right to continue to pollute. Evo Morales left Copenhagen at that UN climate meeting and said, we're going to have our own meeting. He's going to invite world leaders. He's going to invite uh, the farmers, the peasants, the people who struggle for water rights, indigenous peoples. Uh, people from throughout the world to have their own World People's Conference on Climate Change and the Rights of Mother Earth. And that was in Cuchabamba, April 22nd, 2010. And it was really, uh, man, it was a, a really good meeting. It was a lot of critical analysis about where we're at. But Something that really struck out at me and I, I found a, another stronger base there of people who thought like I did. And out of that that meeting came a universal declaration on rights of Mother Earth. But why I mention this is that it talks about that we have to come together as people and nations of of this earth and that we have to challenge the decision makers to reevaluate the relationship to the sacredness of Mother Earth acknowledge that she is a source of life and that we get our nourishment from her. Everything comes from her and recognize that capitalist system along with everything that it it represents, exploitation, abuse, contamination, commodification, and part of the problem of climate change, that we have to address this reality. And that really was the hook for me to better understand where we're at, because if we as Indigenous peoples as well as non-Indigenous people lose our understanding about what those original instructions are that were given to us by the Creator. Then we're in the danger of becoming like dominant society. And that's, that's the critical area, is that we have a dominant system that views Mother Earth as an object. The same way that many of us are addressing the issues of objectification of women. We have an economic system and politics and policies, including property rights that objectifies that sacredness of our Mother Earth. So it's linked up. It's related to this broader frame of financialization of nature that creates a new commodity of nature by turning that sacredness of our Mother Earth's carbon cycling and Mother Earth's life-cycling capacity into property to be bought and sold in a global market. That's what red is, reducing admission from deforestation and degradation, selling the carbon that's in the trees. And who is it that buys that carbon? Who is it that's trading that carbon? It's the polluters, it's, it's Chevron, oil. It's Shell. It's Philips Conical, It's the very polluters that are creating climate change, but also toxic contamination in this world. It gives them a free ride. They use carbon as a sponge. And the carbon credits that they buy are cheaper in the global south. So in a way, what's happening is that they are buying the trees in the south. It's their trees. They have bought carbon. And now we are experiencing human rights violations from all over the global South. Uh, Indonesia, Africa, Latin America, where these forested regions where indigenous peoples live, now they don't have access to the trees because those are protected trees. It is a catch-22 because we do support the conservation of trees. There's so much illegal logging that's going on in the South. Out of what's happening here using trees as part of a trading system with no really clear and strong mechanism for reporting, verification, and monitoring, it ends up potentially, and we've seen this already, just of an international Ponzi scam of uh, climate capitalism.
0: Wow. Thank you, Tom, for unpacking this really disgusting false solution. And it seems that the RED program seems to avail the long-standing colonizer strategy of divide and conquer. And I'm wondering how you've seen communities fissure when grants from the World Bank or NGO rhetoric begin shaping Indigenous delegations.
1: It is one of the problems. And we want to talk about that at our Protecting Mother Earth conference. So, And a lot of these policies that are, you know, that we're struggling with, especially when you link money to it. And we want to come together to address this issue because what is that foundation that holds us together as Indigenous peoples, Aboriginal, First Nation people, not only of North America, Canada and U.S., what we call Turtle Island, but of the world? There's a lot of division, uh, the sacred hoop. It's really not completely broken, but the sacred hoop needs to be mended and and healed because a lot of these initiatives, whether it's mining, the differences between saying no to mining, that there's no such thing as sustainable mining, but yet there's such a push from financial institutions like the World Bank who say, yes, there is sustainable mining. We'll give you money to go development around sustainable mining. But when we consult with our traditional people, there's really concern and lack of trust in the concepts of sustainable mining. Does that really exists. So the other area that we've been talking about is this area of commodification of the sacred, privatization of nature, financialization of life itself. That's the number one Solution for mitigating climate change. And we know, like what I briefly talked about, it's not a real solution, but it's being pushed by some of the well financed, large green groups in this country, US, as well as throughout the world. We call them the large uh, non governmental organizations, NGOs, the well funded. And uh, they're pushing this false solution agenda. Along with World Bank, which is sourcing up indigenous organizations to support RED. RED is a again is part of this carbon trading, carbon offsets. There's other related initiatives like payment for environmental services, compensating people under this uh, regime. So many talks, especially when you're dealing with our people that haven't had money, are they fighting? Other issues and they need resources so we've been battling with this is how do we create the necessary resources to do community-based training and make those available in different languages whether it's the indigenous languages of Brazil or in Ecuador or other areas of uh, the Global South where uh, tropical forests are that's where these uh, these initiatives are being implemented And also domestically in the U.S. and Canada are being implemented in forested areas in the north as well. But structure, but similar. And so there is that division that's happening. We find that as we work with tribes and indigenous communities who are looking at participating in RED, we ask them a simple question. Where does the money come from that they're promising to pay you? And they say, if it's globally, they say, the World Bank, about time the World Bank has given us money, you know, or in California, they say, well, it's coming from the state of California. And uh, we say, no, that money is coming from the polluting industry. That's given them a way out a form of greenwash. but are not cutting back emissions in Richmond, California, or Martinez, California. They are increasing admissions. And what gives them cover is that they say, we have purchased carbon credits to conserve trees. And uh, try to tell that the local community people who have respiratory illnesses. They're dying. There's cancer clusters around a lot of these polluting facilities that are greenwashing. And then the other issue is that the numbers don't add up. Europe was a good example of that in their emissions trading. We have a new publication, a new report that, that we just put together along with the Climate Justice Alliance called Carbon Pricing, a critical perspective uh, for community resistance. And it speaks out to this issue.
0: Do carbon trading regimes threaten cultural genocide on a scale we have never seen before?
1: Well, not only genocide against our people. It's a form of ecocide against nature, against Mother Earth. It's as if these policies are liquidating the sacredness of what we as Indigenous people understand in our relationship to Mother Earth. She's in liquidation. It's all about money. And not only is it red and the trading of carbon in the trees, but now agriculture. In the UN system, they are even proposing what we call climate smart agriculture, which means that it, it involves genetically engineered seeds for agriculture and crops that are climate friendly. And it also involves not turning the soil so that you sequester the carbon in the soil. Again, who buys carbon in the soil? Who makes that investment around climate-smart agriculture, again, it's the polluters. Now it's also mining companies. It's uh, pension funds. There's big money and investments around what I'm talking about. And it involves also biological offsets, conservation offsets. So this is really concerning because on an international scale, it's also coming out of the international realm, it's a whole financial system that is not transparent. The bottom line, at the end of the day, at the 11th hour, it's not our people or even non-Native people that have rights to the land It's going to be in corporate hands. So it's genocide. It's genocide, yes, but cultural, it involves our culture as well. And again, genocide piece comes in to where it's not a solution to climate change. We have melting ice territories of our Inupiat and our people in the polar regions of the north. The ice is melting. The permafrost uh, in Alaska is thawing out. Housing is shifting. There's going to be more erosion along the coastlines. And it's not that easy just to relocate native indigenous peoples from a village, from, from our territories, and relocate to another area. It involves land exchange that have to be negotiated. In many of our areas here in northern Minnesota, and the Great Lakes, our people are always very cautious and looking with both eyes whether or not there's going to be a good fishing season. Our maple syrup, maybe it's going to be just briefly, the sap is going to be running for a week, our rising. Uh, the wild rice, the piscine or the manomen, the, the medicine food, you know, some of the, depending on the seasons, these some of these lakes are drying out. Even here in the Great Lakes, so we're always watching precipitation. But again, if you look at the weather, in our Navajo tradition, there's male rain and female rain. You get a lot of male rain these days that when it rains throughout different parts of the country, it comes down really hard fast and it runs right off the land and goes into the rivers and causes floods and washouts, things like that. When it's more gentle, it it soaks in into the ground. So these are things that affect our right to hunt, our rights to gathering, our medicines and our foods, the right to plant and our agriculture. So this is all part of the link to our health and our well-being. (laughs) i <laughs>
0: Red is clearly reaping egregious violations to the rights of indigenous peoples and the earth, particularly in the global South, like you've been explaining to us. But I also know that here in California, as well as in Alaska, carbon offset programs have actually been welcomed by some indigenous nations. For example, the Chugosh willingly sold their coal rights to a conservation investment management company who then retired those rights to the local native Conservancy Land Trust, leaving the Chugosh to manage their ancestral territory for carbon stocks. I know situations in Alaska are particularly messy as the native communities are navigating the wake of ANSCA, the Alaska Native Claim Settlement Act, but I just wanted to bring this to the table to illuminate more of the complexity surrounding this issue and Probe if you think there is ever a situation in which carbon trading can be beneficial for a community's well-being.
1: Good question. I appreciate you asking that. It goes to the core of whether or not these economic measures would be able to affect the amount of greenhouse gases that go into the environment. That's the critical part we really have to look at. For our network, you know, we are advocating that we need to take action, like action quicker to move away from a fossil fuel economy. Mother Earth just cannot absorb any more carbon. That's why we've been bringing attention to science organizations that have said that if we're going to really turn this planet around and reducing the amount of concentration of greenhouse gases, that we have to keep at least 80% of fossil fuel reserves under the soil, beneath the ocean floor. And we have to start banning any new exploration and exportation of oil, tar sands, oil, gas, shale, or fracking, coal, and, and even the link to other extreme energy that are not solutions like uranium mining and transportation infrastructures, pipelines going across Mother Earth, tanker traffic taking frac oil or tar sands oil overseas from the Pacific Ocean. And the question is, how do we achieve 100% clean renewable energy by 2030 or no later than 2050? any dependence on nuclear power. We're in that critical stage right now. And any participation in these market systems is a contradiction of that need of where we need to go. And I have been in discussions with policymakers and debates around this issue of can we reform Market systems? Can we make them work? People have told me, Tom, we hear you. There's a lot of problems and risk with carbon trading and offsets. You know, work with us so we can make it work. But I'm not sure if we can make it work. Since when has commodification of life and capitalism worked on, on the behalf of our people? Especially, we are trying to get our traditional knowledge recognized. They even wanted to commodify traditional knowledge. So we're at a time really at this crossroad that I've been told to watch out for for a couple of decades. We are there right now. And the temptation is there to try to get us to compromise our position and negotiate in a way that allows this black snake to go across the, not only our land, but in the minds of our people.
0: Okay, one more question about RED because it's such a huge topic to cover. I think about RED and other carbon offset programs and how they operate under the premise that without intervention from a developed country, quote, developing countries, as they call it, will inevitably cut down their forests and extract their resources, anyways. Part of me wants you to debunk this myth. And then the other part of me asks, but It's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy as life-sustaining cultures have no reason to do so until imperialist intervention prohibits them from gathering, hunting, and tending their traditional territories. So in one way, I feel like this is a myth that they're going to do it anyways, these communities. But then a lot of times these communities are pushed into a corner when capitalism comes and really wrecks havoc in their area.
1: Right our indigenous environmental network is really concerned about all these points that we've been talking about is that you know we're committed to looking for real solutions and we have seen that in areas that dissipate in red and we have to understand a lot of the red projects are just starting up but also in some of these areas eventually Deforestation may take place and they just replant the trees in afforestation and it's still part of a market system. So is it a way to preserve and conserve trees? There are already laws in the global south that address illegal logging. So where are the pressure points outside of a market system that puts the pressure on government, whether national or subnational, Brazil, for example, or Ecuador, or the Congo in Africa, and get real solutions to preserve the trees. And those dialogues have not taken place. In areas of Africa, there already are human rights violations perpetuated by the national governments against tribal peoples in the remote areas of the forests. There's big money in forests now in these carbon trading mechanisms. We already are seeing violations of the human rights of forests and communities that are going to be removed from their traditional homelands uh, because those trees are now part of a market system. We're seeing that now. Plantations and parks, national forest parks, uh, social bosques in, uh, in Ecuador where there's already violence, where Indigenous peoples are standing up and saying, no, we never gave away our rights to have access to our forests. It is some serious critical questions that we do need to ask ourselves and look for real solutions to conserve and protect our trees. Forest management in the north, in California, is a big issue. Many of the tribes I talk to don't know where the money comes from. And that's where I believe that if we continue to speak the truth and we start continuing to have trainings and workshops and get together as Indigenous peoples like our, at our protected Mother Earth gatherings to have space to be able to share the information we have, to bring experts and scientists and economists in, Native and non-Native who have researched this topic of red and make them available to our people because our people aren't hearing from them they're hearing from the other side that are promoting it that's something that is very critical where we're at but it's linked to energy you know it's linked to an economic system that where we're dependent on a fossil fuel economy it's all linked i don't think that the system as i call it matrix i don't think the matrix really wants to wean ourselves away from Fossil fuels. It's thinking of every excuse, every greenwash tactics to continue to dig and extract, earn, dump every toxic pollution, every oil from the ground, every fossil fuel until we run out. And it's all about funding. And if it can convince us to use a market system like we've been talking about, it will do that. Or we'll even promote technologies like cloud seeding, and these other genetic engineering tactics, they are doing that already. We're going to talk about that at the Protecting Mother Earth Conference as well.
0: Thank you so much, Tom, for walking us through the complexities of red and carbon trading. I think that the majority of people don't understand all of the hidden loopholes that are tied within it but they just see it as a solution but really it is such a detrimental false solution so i i'm so appreciative of the time you've taken to spread the word about this you know no doubt money is a primary vector for the cannibalistic sickness of dominant society but i wonder where we find ourselves now in order to protect land and life ways in order to ensure our voices are heard we rely on money And ultimately, it seems that all money is dirty and tethered to some type of resource extraction. So I'd like to know, what do you think about that? And do you think there is a way to funnel money to good causes with integrity? And yeah, I guess, like, are there righteous funding initiatives that you believe in?
1: Well, there are. There are funding mechanisms out there. I call it clean money. Yeah, I've, I've been in debates where people say all money is not clean at some point. But as compared to where the polluters are putting their money into a false solution like climate change, let's just say that's dirty money. And we've been advocating for governments and communities to participate in conservation measures that are outside of a market system. And you'll see some of that language and some of the negotiation at the United Nations climate meetings, non-carbon and non-market. I believe that that's where we need to go. And we need to create a political will. Generally, in my assessment, people of the world and people right here in River City in the United States, aren't well-versed on economics. The public education system has failed us. I've been to Mumbai, for an example, in India. I have been into the slum areas and I have engaged on this discussion of economics and economic justice, Uh, and they get it, they understand it. But here in America, it's difficult to find people where I can engage in talking about economics and capitalism and especially, you know, where do we go if we, if we want to make an economic change? Where do we go? How do we get there? So as we understand an extractive economy, that's something we really need to analyze. And that's one thing we're going to introduce as far as these different concepts. You know, it's not going to just take four days. But we're going to give the tools for people to think and to be critical thinkers. As indigenous peoples, you know, many of us been in the public school systems. We've been raised in a society that doesn't value who we are, our traditional knowledge, our identity, our language. Many of us are part of that seventh generation, part of that seventh to the eighth fire. Our children now are part of that generation that are going to make and change. But that also means being critical thinkers of where we are and where we're going, and to really look at this danger of capitalism, an economic system that creates money. You know, what is our model of growth? How do we evaluate that for us as indigenous people? So, what we've been advocating is decolonization process for us as Indigenous peoples. To ask ourselves about establishing our own policies on our own indigenous-based index for living well that creates and establishes standards for meaningful work, a livable wage. What is that for our reservations? But does it create a sustainable community? Are there other models for housing, building our homes, energy efficient homes? other than these government-subsidized homes that leak in the middle of winter? What's our agriculture and what's food sovereignty to create our own food? And this is all linked together, renewable energy. How do we rebuild our communities based upon our original instructions and also looking at the future generations, seven generations to be able to take them into account? So this is part of the challenge that we have. And it is gonna be a challenge because a lot of our native nations, whether it's in Canada or the US, we are dependent on federalism. We're dependent on the money that comes down. And we send our children, we send them to college and universities who come back and they wanted a good job. So we do recognize that economy is very important. What kind of economy are we gonna build as native people? We're, we're small islands. Of people in a broader dominant economic system of America and we know so a lot of problems with the economic system is that it's, it perpetuates unlimited growth it's barely hanging on it's depleted a lot of the fish in the oceans you know and this is part of that problem that, that at least we're recognizing in our circles of people that we're working with and a lot of them do come from frontline communities We have to change the way that we are operating again and recognize the sacredness of our Mother Earth and our Father Sky and live in peace and harmony with Mother Earth, not treat her violently like we see on the news stations every day or throughout the world. It's like society of the world is at war with Mother Earth and always exploiting her, degrading her, polluting her, privatizing her. If there's an economic system we can develop, and we can't do that alone, and and that's something we are doing, we're mobilizing with non-Indigenous people, people of color, for an example, people from the global south, small farmers, the peasants. We're going to change a system, and I believe we can do that. But it takes education, popular education, and beginning to Speak up as indigenous people about that responsibilities that all of humanity has to protect that sacred female principle of uh, creative principle of Mother Earth.
0: That's beautiful, Tom. And as we've been talking about the economic system, I've been thinking as well as about the legal system. And I'm reflecting on how colonizer legal systems have foundationally enabled the destruction of the planet These environmental laws and regulations have never sought to protect nature, only to legalize exploitation. And while corporations are granted personhood by law, water, soil, forests, etc. are considered property. And although there are glimpses of this transforming with countries such as Bolivia and Ecuador and New Zealand adopting the Declaration of the Rights of Mother Nature, stemming from a movement that you've been vital to, so I want to ask... How do you see the legal recognition of the rights of nature challenging and shifting the prevailing paradigms that uphold violent and disharmonious ways of being?
1: It's part of our prophecies, for one thing. Some of our people have been told that a time will come when these children of the colonizers, you know, these people who come as the settlers, that they're going to start waking up and see those things that we've always been saying that's coming about. Some lawyers, some social change people, they're starting to come about throughout the world, and they formed an alliance on the rights of nature. Of course, I initially was very cautious in that. And, you know, what is the agenda of these descendants of settlers? As I checked it out, and and a number of us were evaluating at work with these people, we felt that it was consistent with at least with those prophecies that we we have. And there's other people I know who have talked about the doctrines of discovery. And even back then, in the colonization of the US and of their Americas, there were international laws at the time. So question I'm sure that was asked, how can Colonizers, the countries that are coming here to the US and the, throughout the Americas, how can they come and invade and colonize our territories legally under international law? It need the church, basically and very simplistic. you need the church to say that we are not civilized, we are pagans. And that, that's part of that process. The doctrines of discovery, manifest destiny. So one of the challenges that we look at in our decolonization process is to call question to the concepts of dominion. Dominion. It's the same thing with the man says, I have dominion over my wife. The same thing man says, they have dominion over Mother Earth. And that's a concept. That's a principle that we have to change. We got to really work together to Reevaluating our relationship as humanity to the sacredness of Mother Earth and how we walk upon her. That's where we're at. That's why we're continuing to look throughout the world about the struggles of indigenous peoples like the Maori people who have fought for the recognition of the river over in New Zealand. And it's important for them to look at that. And they've been fighting for it for a long time, and now New Zealand has finally recognized the personality of that river. And I was just there, I went over there. We're looking at that, it's progress, it's the first step. It's something that we're continuing to promote throughout the world is this new system of what we call systems change, not climate change, where it moves away from this uh, framework of privatization and looking at mother earth as a property right it's very critical to us.
0: were talking earlier about reservations and basically where you were describing a just transition for native folks and you mentioned renewable energy and i really question renewable energy more and more all the time for example i truthfully don't see solar panels as part of a regenerative culture especially after my interview with jacinda mack a native woman from british columbia who's dealing with mining disasters and somewhere, a sacred mountain is demolished. Waters are polluted. Humans and more than humans inflicted upon to maintain the rare minerals they require. You know, Not to mention the energy expended from the mining itself, the assembly, the transport, the installation, the upkeep, so on and so forth. So renewable energy as it's unfolding now is not clean, nor does it question systems of oppression or our infrastructure with limitless growth. So I'd like to... Ask your opinion on our collective capacity for a just transition. And do you have any stories you'd be willing to share of communities who are embodying a just transition and regenerative way forward with unique integrity?
1: Yeah, we're right in the middle of developing our indigenous based just transition initiative. And part of what we've been advocating for that I mentioned on this interview is. The need for us as indigenous peoples to really have that critical analysis with the question of where are we going for the next generation? Where are we going in 2050 when there's gonna be an evaluation of whether or not these uh, climate policies that are being implemented at the national and uh, international level have really worked. Our youth now will be elders in 2050? What's the evaluation mechanisms and the indicators that will be used at that time? Are we as a native indigenous people going to be in seven generations? Those are critical questions that that we are asking. And we want to engage our leadership, both grassroots, women, youth, and elected governments are about this question. How do we build alignment? Where are we going as far as building a just transition and transformation to a better world? Those are questions that we have that we have to ask ourselves. And it does look at the concern we have not only within our territories, where some of our native nations are invested in mineral extraction, who are invested in fossil fuel development, but we also have to challenge the dominant society to be part of this transition. We have in the United States policies that really create too much waste. We have uh, policies that encourage continued consumption at levels that are not sustainable. Our dependence on uh, on energy is something that we really need to look at in, in this country and Canada as well, these big cities. If we're gonna be pushing for wind turbine, our photovoltaic solar at the scale to meet the current needs being expressed by an addicted society to energy is not sustainable. So we really need to reevaluate what is our needs energy wise. What is the concepts of energy democracy when we look at not only our energy, true energy needs, but also how do we as communities have more control on the energy that we produce, or do we participate in a colonial federal electrical grid line system? Now, what is a microgrid system? Those are things that we are advocating for as Indigenous Environmental Network. When it comes to just transition, definitely those are areas, again, that we're lifting up this decolonization process that does look at our physical, our psychological, our emotional, our spiritual strategies. Because that's always has been a factor as we look about where we are going. Is our body, our mind, our heart, and our spirit as it relates to where we've been with trauma, colonization, but also going through the healing process. So this is kind of, again, where we're at. Just transition has to have its foundation and our original instructions, those spiritual teachings that have been left to us by our ancestors, and uh, leave enough of that information and knowledge for our future generations to recognize, again, that, that vital life cycle of Mother Earth. That should be the core of where we go and how we build our communities. How does it impact our Mother Earth, our water of life, our air, our trees? It does bring up some of these questions that this other movement by non-Native people within the the Rights of Nature movement are asking. Do the trees have standing? Those are critical questions that they are asking that really jumped out at me on that question of the trees have standing. Looking at if white folks can develop uh, their own laws, like in Pennsylvania, I mentioned that earlier, where they have laws that they recognize the rights of nature. I think I remember a couple of their communities through their ordinances and including the city of Philadelphia passed an ordinance that recognized the ecosystem and the natural community as having legal right to exist and to be healthy and to flourish. And that, you know, the community, the people uh, have that, authority to enforce and defend those rights. That's not much different than those instructions I've been raised on, that we are guardians, we are caretakers, that when Mother Earth cannot speak for herself, we are there to speak for her. I remember Roberta Blackboat made an intervention in Geneva, that statement talking about the earth bundles of the mountain area most people in the world don't know how to listen to nature they don't know how to listen to the earth and it's our people that that have to do that so again we're going to talk about these at the protecting mother earth conference coming up june 28th through july 1st in the territories of the nisqually nation the people in washington state
0: yes i'm so grateful that you're putting on this conference to give space to these issues for people, indigenous people to come together and really sit with one another. And like you said, have people and lawyers and those who are up to date with the laws and, and the regulations and, and how we can learn and educate ourselves. And and so I I really am so excited about protecting mother earth conference. And one more question, Tom, before we end this incredible conversation. You've mentioned a few times in the interview about this time and perhaps the cosmology or the proverbs behind it. And I so respect your connection to spirit. And I'm interested by what lessons your cosmology gleans from this particular time of great unraveling and great change. And if there's anything you feel called to say about where humanity stands right now or for the carrying capacity of Earth in your belief system?
1: You know, a couple of years ago, I, I was talking to Orrin Lyons, a faith keeper, on the Daga people, over in the Great Lakes, the Iroquois Confederacy. He told me that they have prophecies in the Mohawk people. Trees will start dying from the top down. And uh, he related that to where we're at with climate change, because they started to raise this issue up in the late 1970s, as far as climate and prophecy. For us uh, as IEN and my role, I've been there as a knowledge holder as well. And I remember a statement that we we said at a circle of wisdom keepers, including elected tribal leaders and grassroots and spiritual leaders. In 1998, that was the foundation of our work here on climate. And we said that, you know, indigenous uh, prophecy now meets that what we have known and believed. you also now know the earth is out of balance. The plants are disappearing, the animals are dying and the very weather, rain, wind, fire itself reacts against the actions of the human being for the future of the children, for the health of our mother earth, father sky and the rest of creation call upon the people of the world to hold your leaders accountable. That's what the elders and our youth and women and our elected leaders and grassroots said in 1998 at a Circles of Wisdom gathering to talk about our native homelands. And it was a climate workshop that was held in Albuquerque. It was there that was a foundation of recognizing that prophecy of where we're at and why we need to do what we're doing. Just transition is part of that foundation. Transition is inevitable. Justice is not. That's why we have to fight for the justice. And so we will get there and lifting up those good way of thinking, lifting up our original instructions and those teachings of respecting ourselves, our clan systems, our family systems, and our native nations. We always say to the rest of the world, don't just put it on our shoulders. We need the people of the world to come together to learn about what's going on here. And we're going to talk about that very soon.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Tom, for this, the time that you've spent with all of us diving into such complex issues and we support you and IN and indigenous rising and protecting mother earth conference. Thank you for all that you do. And we will keep supporting and really believing in your leadership and those that you work with.
1: Thank you very much for this opportunity.
0: Thank you so much for listening to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. And our music today was by Elia Natalia Schwein. Our theme music is Silence Returns by Bo and Like a River from Kate Wolf. I'd like to thank our incredible podcast team, our producer and editor, Andrew Stores, research director, Madison Mogolski, media director, Molly Lee Bove, and research assistant, Francesca Glasbell. Questions for this episode were crafted by Madison Mogolski, Francesca Glassbell, and myself. If you want to learn more about our other projects, including the Tongass National Forest Campaign to End Old Growth Logging, the One Million Redwoods Project, and be attuned to other updates, sign up for our newsletter on our website at forthewild.world. Also, rate us on iTunes if you haven't already. All right, thanks so much, and until next week
1: smells of doors and windows closed against the day the
0: sweet smell of the pie